the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lent is a time in the life of the church where we journey through what theologian Alexander Schmemann calls a bright sadness. Sadness defines the mundane experience of living our lives in a broken world where we experience pain, loneliness, and longing for wholeness, intimacy, and abundant life. And yet, for those of us with hope in our Lord Christ, it is a bright sadness because we know that Jesus took all of that loneliness and pain and longing for wholeness, intimacy, and abundant life. He took it to its limits on the cross and in his death and resurrection utterly destroyed death. Through Lent, we are journeying with St. Matthew as he shows us the beautiful and radiant life of Jesus. On Ash Wednesday, Aubrey pointed us to Psalm 19 and how Jesus is the bridegroom, rising from his bridal chamber to run his course with joy. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus enters the death chamber where Jairus' daughter lies dead, and he casts out the mourners and raises his beloved daughter to life. Two weeks ago, Keith showed us how through the first nine chapters of Matthew, Jesus calls forth ten adversaries, all kinds of diseases and demons and death itself, and defeats them one by one in an echo of God's might in vanquishing the gods of Egypt that led to the deliverance and exodus of his people. Matthew wants us to know that not only is Jesus powerful, but he's safe. He can heal all our diseases as he draws near to us and abides with us. We are invited to trust him with our lives because as Paul preached to the Greeks in Acts 27, in him we live and move and have our being. Our life is completely safe in his hands. That's an important theme that we'll circle back to in a moment. Last week we heard how Jesus commissions the 12 apostles and in the Greek, ekbalos them, literally cast them out into the world two by two with his own authority to teach, heal, cast out demons, and raise the dead. Aubrey pointed out to us how Jesus' ascending of the twelve is a mirror of the mandate God gave the original pair in Genesis to steward and care for his creation. The mandate to the disciples is expanded in Matthew to not only care for creation, but to actively restore what was broken in the fall into sin through healing every disease and casting out demons and raising the dead. The 12 are sent out because they must be, in their very vocation, image bearers of their Lord. As Jesus is sent into the world to redeem, so they will carry that redeeming power as they go to offer healing and restoration as a sign of the coming kingdom of God. Aubrey reminded us that the apostolic 12 were the kernel of the church and that the church, we are entrusted with the prophetic mandate to share the good news of Jesus with the world. We were challenged last week to go likewise into the world in the power of Christ and with humility and poverty to be a faithful sign of the kingdom and not as those who abuse power or seek material gain for our own sakes. All right, that catches us up. If you missed any of those sermons, go back and listen to them and reread the beginning of Matthew because these lessons of power and trust are essential for us to know in the depths of our being 
as we approach what comes next. The dark glory of Jesus' path awaits us as we re-enter the narrative in Matthew 10, 16. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew 10. In Matthew 10, 16, Jesus reiterates the promise of his presence and authority to the 12 apostles. Behold, look here, I am sending you. We must always remember that it is Christ who casts us out into the world and that as we go, we go with his authority. And it's really true, you know. If you've been baptized, you have received the Holy Spirit, who is not some vague ghost, but is the presence and the power of God living in you. A little later in this passage, Jesus will reiterate that we have the spirit of our Father living in and speaking through us. What a promise this is. That's good news indeed. Right, so we're being sent, and we must faithfully respond so the power of God can be shown in us. How should we go? What does that power look like? Well, let's conduct a survey, a thought experiment. If you could pick an animal to represent you and your character, what would you choose? I'd choose something regal and majestic, a mountain lion maybe. Powerful, stealthy, in control, at the top of the food chain. I've just given myself away, haven't I? Anybody here choose a sheep? Who wants to be that, really? Especially because earlier in the gospel, Matthew describes the sheep that Jesus sees as mangled and helpless. That is most definitely not an attractive picture. An animal utterly and completely helpless and at the mercy of another its guts on display, unable to save itself, ruined. Behold, Jesus says, I am sending you out as sheep. Oh, come on, wait a minute. Didn't Jesus just send the disciples out, promising that they would do the very things that he did? Heal the sick, cast out demons, raise the dead. Those sound like mountain lion sorts of powers. How do we get from raising the dead to being pathetic and sheep-like again? Haven't we left that all behind now that we're empowered with this power that Jesus gave us? And that's not even the worst of it. Behold, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. That's a big nope. <laughs> Everybody knows what wolves do to sheep. All right, let's take a step back. Remember how last week Aubrey reminded us that Jesus sent out the 12 was the kernel of the church. Remember also that the 12 that Jesus sent out included the betrayers, Peter at the front of the list, and Judas bringing up the rear. These were men who had walked with Jesus, seen his demonstration of power in teaching, healing, and casting out demons and raising the dead. They had been rescued by Jesus, and then they had been given extraordinary authority and power to carry out this same ministry. And yet they betrayed their commission and their Lord. Peter and Judas, sheep or wolf. The difference between Peter and Judas is that though both became wolf, Judas remained wolf while Peter was transmogrified back into a sheep. If you'll permit me a little detour into the classics of American literature. <laughs> 
you remember that in the Calvin and Hobbes strip where Calvin created a transmogrifier gun that could change boys to tigers and tigers to ducks and back again? Well, if you'll permit me, Peter, having experienced the utter devastation of wolfishness and betraying of Jesus, subjected himself to the transmogrifying ray of Jesus' mercy and love and was redeemed, while Judas's wolfish, ravenous appetite drove him to betrayal, desperation, and death. Sadly, becoming wolf comes surprisingly easy to us. We often feel that to live vulnerably and humbly in this world is to invite people to take advantage of us. It's risky, it's uncomfortable. When we feel threatened, we bristle and snarl until we create a protective distance. Only when the threat is removed do we start to revert back to a docile appearance. But once the wolf takes hold, its nature grows stronger in us day by day until the docility that allows us to remain in the pastures of our Lord has gone out of us. We become wolves in sheep's clothing. So long as we allow the wolf to rule in its unrestrained power, we cannot be ruled by the gentle shepherd. John Chrysostom, who was a doctor and teacher in the church in the fourth century, puts it this way. As long as we are sheep, we overcome, and though surrounded by countless wolves, we emerge victorious. But if we turn into wolves, we are overcome, for we lose the shepherd's help. He, after all, feeds the sheep, not wolves. And if you lose him, you lose him if you do not let him show his power in you. Folks, we are sheep if Jesus is the good shepherd. And I bet you know, as I do, what it's like to feel the wolf come alive in you. And it can be so subtle. We feel threats around us to our time, to our ego, to our feelings of well-being. And we push away to create distance. And then we lash out, aiming to hurt and wound so we don't feel the pain inside of us. How quickly we forget these words. Behold. I am sending you out as sheep, and the Lord is my shepherd. Even in the presence of my enemies, he is with me to comfort me. There is no place that I can go that my shepherd is not my help and my rescue. Do you feel the wolf crouching in you this morning? As you look back over the week, do you notice those times when a ravenous rage awoke in you? Look to the shepherd and he will heal you. I want to give you three very practical ways that with the Lord's grace and help, you can vanquish the wolf in you as you go into a world of wolves. First, call on the shepherd, for he is good and will help you. In Psalm 19, where we hear about the bridegroom who arises from the chamber to run his race, we hear these words. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. 
Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Did you catch that? The word of God and the person of Jesus, who is the word of God in human flesh, will catch our hidden faults and keep us from sin. In our confession liturgy, we often acknowledge both sins of omission, the hidden sins, and sins of commission, the presumptuous sins named in this passage. The Lord is faithful to remove those sins from us as far as the east is from the west if we confess them, and the wolf will not have dominion over us. Through the word of God and the person of Christ, we are cured of our lycanthropy, our becoming wolf. In a few moments, we'll come to the table of our Lord. It has often been said that the Eucharist is not a prize for the perfect, but a medicine for the sick. As we come mangled and helpless to receive the body and blood of our Lord, the Lamb who is slain for the salvation of the world, we receive a blood transfusion that purges us from the wolfishness as we submit to the grace of Christ. A friend of mine was diagnosed with a rare form of cancer. The only hope for a cure was from, for him to receive a bone marrow transplant and a full blood replacement where his blood would be cycled out of his body and the blood of another was cycled in. His sister was the donor for the marrow and the blood. My friend told me that after his blood replacement, he was no longer allergic to poison ivy. His voice had changed slightly, higher I believe, and his bone density and bodily frame changed. His blood transfusion literally cured him and changed him from the inside out. So will our Lord Jesus as we submit to his grace in our life. Second, we are often blind to our own wolfishness. We can't be healed unless it is brought to the light. We need companions who are truth tellers to help us catch the wolf when it emerges. If you're here this morning and you're not in a small group, Get there as fast as you can. Our small groups are safe places where we can tell each other the truth about our lives and hear the truth of God spoken to and over us, and we can ask for prayer and accountability for our lives. You see this pattern emerging in the New Testament church, and the Apostle James counsels in his letter, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Remember, the sheep are sent into this world together, never alone. We need each other as the church for mutual encouragement, strengthening, and correction. So these first two practices that I've given you have been ways that we can guard our hearts inwardly. The third points to how we can remain the sheep of our shepherd as we go into the world on mission. Here we turn back to Matthew chapter 10. In the second half of verse 16, Jesus encourages his disciples to be sheep who are wise or crafty as serpents and harmless as doves. As if sheepishness wasn't enough, why the snake and the dove? Jesus is pointing us to two further postures that can help us be faithful stewards of the gospel. Remember, all these mandates of Jesus are part of Jesus' sending not for a people comfortably static and keeping the good news to ourselves. 
but a people who in word and deed are on mission to the world. The two postures are craftiness and harmlessness. My wife grew up on a lovely farm near Broadway. Her family was so hospitable that the snakes would move in from time to time. <laughs> Her dad would go into the basement to get canned goods and lo and behold, curled up on top of a hot water pipe would be a large black snake that he would then carry out of the house. An even craftier snake made its way into the crawl spaces under the house and from there found its way into the vents to appear in the bathroom. Isn't that a lovely way to be greeted in the morning? The disciples' craftiness will get them into all sorts of places that they will be able to bear witness to the gospel. A friend of mine once said that if you are a disciple of Jesus and on mission with the Holy Spirit, you will find yourself in places you have no worldly business being in. <laughs> the Luke-Acts story is shot through with this very testimony. Often when the apostles are arrested in the book of Acts, having heard Jesus' mandate to go out crafty as serpents, they have opportunity to share the good news of Jesus with governors, counselors, and even kings. This happened over and over with Peter, John, Stephen, Barnabas, and especially Paul. In at least two separate incidents in Acts, Paul is arrested and bound, and in one case, beaten by Roman authorities. In a prime example of craftiness, Paul knows that it is illegal to bind and beat an unconvicted Roman citizen, and he plays that card to the advantage of being able to share the gospel to Roman tribunes in command all the way up the chain until his appeals for justice get him to the Caesar in Rome. Over and over we see Paul using every means at his disposal to further the gospel, whether it is being shipwrecked on an island or standing in the court of a king. Paul has been utterly convinced by Jesus' promise that this will happen and that the Spirit of God will speak through him. If we are at the disposal of Jesus, he will use our natural goings out and comings in as a means to share his life with the world, to demonstrate his power through us. You and I may or may not be hauled before courts, governors, or kings, but how can you display the craftiness of Paul in your own workplace or community? We have incredible access to people around us who need to hear the good news. Let's be a people of mischief who are willing to take risks to bring God's healing, releasing, and reconciling good news to the world, even in hard places. And you not only see this in the New Testament, it's a pattern you see all over the scriptures as you look at the story from beginning to end. Another great example is Queen Esther, who rescued her people from genocide uh, by using the place that she was in to appeal to God's goodness and God's graciousness and to save her people. Now, craftiness without the second posture of harmlessness or innocence can just be manipulative or self-serving. The innocence and harmlessness of the dove is a necessary companion to the craftiness of the snake. Innocence, in this case, does not mean naivety. Jesus tells us that all will hate us and attempt to do us harm for our commitment to him. But he also promises that he is with us and that he, we can trust him, as we've seen over and over. So we open ourselves to be wounded and not to wound in return. Anybody know what Friday, March 17 is? What that date marks? Yeah, St. Patrick's Day an excuse to drink beer and pretend to be Irish. 
Since the Church of Incarnation has a Celtic cross in its logo, it seems remiss not to highlight this great saint of the church from the British Isles from which Anglicanism arose. Patrick was born in the late 4th or early 5th century in Roman Britain. He came from a well-to-do family and his father was a deacon in the church. Patrick was not a believer in his youth despite his religious upbringing. At about age 16 or so, he was captured in a raid of Irish pirates and taken as a slave to Ireland where he worked as a shepherd in captivity for six years. During his captivity, he experienced God's mercy and grace in his life and became a follower of Jesus. His tenure as a shepherd in the mountains of Ireland afforded him a lot of time for prayer and he was strengthened in his faith. In a vision, Patrick was told to prepare for a difficult journey and so he escaped slavery to the coast 200 miles away where he found a ship preparing to sail for England. He persuaded the captain to allow him to board and sailed back to his home in England and was reunited with his family. Back in England, Patrick continued his studies and growing in the faith until he was ordained a priest and then a bishop. During that time, he had another vision where he heard the voice of his former captors imploring him to return to be a missionary to his, the Irish people. This vision impressed itself on Patrick's heart, and he eventually did return to Ireland as a missionary. Legend had it that at first, Patrick was unwelcome and threatened with imprisonment and death on several occasions. In his Confessio, he writes, Daily I expect either a violent death or to be robbed and reduced to slavery or the occurrence of some such calamity. I have cast myself into the hands of the Almighty God, for God rules everything. As the prophet says, cast your care upon the Lord and God will sustain you. In his craftiness, he invited the sons of chieftains in Ireland to join his traveling band, and many of them converted to the faith. He regularly met with pagan tribal, tribal chiefs to ask for safe passage and land where he could set up churches and monasteries where he establishes and ordains local leaders before moving on to continue to evangelize and plant new churches and communities as outposts of the gospel. These outposts often reached back into these tribes as people came out of them to hear the gospel and then would return as missionaries to share their faith. I tell this story because it demonstrates the craftiness and harmlessness of St. Patrick in returning at great cost to his health and life to a people that had enslaved him. Because of his faithfulness in being sent by Jesus to Ireland, he was given the opportunity to share the gospel before chieftains and kings, even as his life was continually under threat. In Patrick's own telling, in the power of the Holy Spirit, he was able to heal the sick, cast out demons, and raise the dead throughout Ireland. Through his faithfulness to Jesus' call on his life to proclaim the gospel faithfully and humbly, and yet with power, Many in Ireland came to call on the name of the Lord. By all means, drink some green beer this St. Patrick's Day if that's your thing. But better yet, ask God by his grace to shape you into a servant like St. Patrick, who followed his gentle shepherd into a world of wolves to bring them the saving news of Jesus Christ. In our reading from the book of Romans this morning, we hear Paul imploring his readers to be wise to what is good and innocent to what is evil, knowing that the God of peace will crush Satan under his feet 
and the peace of Christ will reign in them. Do you hear the echo of Jesus' words from Matthew 10 here? The promise of the bright sadness of Lent is that though we may now experience the wolf at the door, if we abide in Christ and trust in his resurrection power and presence in us, we will see Satan crushed, and we will rest in the peace of Christ as we go on mission with him. Let us be obedient to the command and way of Christ so that he may rejoice over us. For he is our good God and our good shepherd, and we the sheep of his pasture. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.